What's the most boring thing in the world? I don't know, carpets? Yeah, carpet. <laughs> this song sounds like a carpet. All right. <laughs> if anybody told me my song sounded like the noise of a carpet, I'd be like, that is not a compliment. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the podcast where friends and musicians get together to discuss an album off of the list from Robert Dimery of the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. So if you're new to the podcast, the way this thing works is that each week we get together, we analyze, we praise, we complain, we tear apart some albums at the end of our podcast here, we'll all vote on whether or not you actually need to hear it. So this week, we've been listening to what is potentially the worst album name I've ever heard, released by a band with potentially the coolest name I've ever heard. That's right. We've been listening to the 1996 album Emperor Tomato Ketchup by the band Stereolab. But before we get any further, I want to throw it over to my colleague, Rob, who's got his hand in the mailbag. Oh, we've been upgraded to colleagues, have we? <laughs> Downgraded from friends. Here I thought we upgraded were upgraded to colleagues. Compatriots at the very <laughs> least. <laughs> Lifelong friends? No. Well wisher, in that I wish you no deliberate harm. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's dive into the mailbag. We got a couple of good ones this week. So first we have someone writing from quite far away. Terrence from Adelaide over in Australia writes. A friend sent me over the thriller episode recently and introduced me to you guys. Love how you focused on the non-hit songs, which I felt like was more than just the same old rehash. Then, he says, intrigued solely by the title of the episode, I then went on to listen to the Mars Volta's Deloused in the Comatorium. After hearing everyone's most excellent tweet-length reviews about it, I had to go listen, and I have to thank you for turning me on to something so flipping unique. Your tweet-length reviews really nailed it. It's outer space music with more notes than most bands play in a career. Keep up the good work. <laughs> All right. That That's is awesome. That is apps. Yes. More notes than a band, band's playing a career. Definitely. Yes. And then uh, we have one more from an even more recent episode. We have Larry from Bethlehem, I think PA, near, so not too far from where we're all sitting here, or most of us are. Larry writes, love the Bjork episode. You guys were talking about It's Oh So Quiet. And then right after mentioned Bjork's version of Like Someone in Love being kind of like a standard. Well, maybe you guys knew this, but they're both standards from the Great American Songbook. And yeah, I wasn't on that episode, but I noticed that too. Like Someone in Love, you might I know it from uh, that Chet Baker Sings record, which is actually a great record that I would recommend. But anyway, Betty Hutton recorded the original English version of It's Oh So Quiet back in 1951. And while I agree Bjork's version is cool, especially the Spike Jones-directed video, what I've always thought was interesting is that the arrangement is nearly identical, including the strings and the vocal ups and downs. I will be honest, I did the research for that episode, and I did not know that they were standards from the Great American Songbook, so that's uh, that's on me. I did not know that either until this exact moment. I was too busy uh, looking into the uh, you know exports of Iceland so that we could really get those uh, <laughs> apt dings in on. You know, there's, there's, quite, there's quite a few songs in that songbook, let's be honest. It's hard to know them all. Fair enough, fair enough. 
Thank you, Rob, for the emails there. Don't forget, folks, you can also email us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. I have my own correction, though. So, Rob, last week you informed us that someone had written in with, uh, or was it a review, actually? Somewhat negative, somewhat positive review. I have confirmed that that was actually for another podcast. (laughs) So, we are happy to receive reviews for all kinds of different podcasts. That was the one where they accused us of of having the favorite band of Rush. Is that right? That's what didn't ring true for yes, us. Yes, yeah. Rush and specifically Tom and Jefferson Starship or something like that. Well, that was just a guess because Tom has previously expressed his love for the work of Jefferson yeah, no. Starship. One but. song. One song. <laughs> Nothing's going to stop us now, which I will admit sucks, but I do like. <laughs> Just saying you're on record. And this guy this guy was panning us for for yelling about a Jefferson Airplane record. Oh, that's what so that didn't that Airplane. didn't ring true. Yeah, we hadn't talked yeah. about Jefferson Airplane yet. So you know, we'll take it if you want to leave us a review for like Marketplace with Kyra's doll or something like that. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> love Kyra. Yes. Love Kyra. All right. So like we do every week, we're gonna jump right into the music here and come back with our tweet length reviews. So here it is, the opening track from Stereo Labs' Emperor Tomato Ketchup. This is called Metronomic Underground. there you have it so that was the opening track a whopping nearly eight minutes we didn't subject you to the full eight minutes there but what we're going to do now is work our way around the studio and hear those quick tweet length reviews and how your week was so let's start with tom all righty thank you adam i had a little bit of a problem putting together a tweet length review and i think that it is somewhat emblematic of this album I had a hard time pegging it to 1996. This sounds like it could have been made anytime in like the 2000s maybe, but it doesn't sound like 1996. It's a fresh sound. It's a cool sound. Definitely hits and misses. But overall, um, I thought that they had a unique approach to making um, rock influence pop music um, that felt pretty fresh. And it still feels fresh to this day. I will say still feels fresh. Hey, this is Rob here. I read that this record was a big hit on college radio stations, which makes sense because that's when one has the most use for pleasant but ignorable makeout music that adds an air of European pretentiousness to our everyday lives. Nice. <laughs> Phil. Yeah, so guys, I have to admit that my my tweet length review this this week is uh too long, did not read. I uh I put in <laughs> Absolutely zero minutes on Stereo Lab, uh, and I. Uh, You're a richer person for it. 
<laughs> no, no, no. But I, I did, I did want to jump in this week to talk for, about something that's really been bothering me. I actually got really nervous when Rob got into the mailbag there. I've been okay. thinking entirely <laughs> too much about my rejection of Bjork's debut. Entirely too much. I was thinking about it during Octung Baby. I was thinking about it when I was ready to pan Cosmos Factory. And I really just don't know how I'm going to move forward now that I've set the bar here. So I would like to redact my. Whoa. Oh, is this a first? Hold on. Is is this allowed? Can we open the sacred book? The text? I I don't don't know, guys. I just, I need to go on record. Can we get the holy whiteout? (laughs) (laughs) The saving grace for you, Phil, is that it made the list already. So we're not taking it from off the list and back on the list. It's on the list just with an asterisk that it's it's now unanimously on the list. Okay, good. Because I I really I was having trouble having trouble trying to to parse how I You know, like a crafty Bart Simpson underperforming on his report card, Phil. I have managed to change your original vote. In the sacred scrolls. Excellent. Excellent. Good. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll all sleep. We'll all sleep better knowing that. All right, guys. Well, I've got to jump off. I have uh, better things to do. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's clearly a lie, but (laughs) Uh, you guys enjoy the rest of the night. Have a great. Oh, thank you so much, sir. All right, so this is Adam. Uh, my quick review. So I hit a bit of writer's block for my tweet-length review, but during my research, I found Stereolab ran into the same issue. So in honor of this album, I'm going to employ the Stereolab technique for creativity and see if it actually works. 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 Let me know when this gets annoying. And see if it actually works. And see, my God. You got about seven and a half minutes more of that. Right. <laughs> I, I swear, I almost I almost did it like that, too. That's good. So we'll get into why that reference makes sense in uh, just a little bit. But there are two elephants in the room I want to hit real quick off the top here, just in terms of, of this band of this album. Emperor Tomato Ketchup. What the hell does that mean? What is that name? They took that name for the album from a Japanese experimental film from 1970. It's available on archive.org. I recommend you probably don't watch it as you don't want that on your ISP or browser history. It's really weird. There's no dialogue. It's in black and white. It's bordering on like upsetting pornographic. It is weird. I, so, I heard it described as avant-garde Japanese porno meets Lord of the Flies. Yes. That I is like accurate. how you are just climbing the pretension ladder with every single different <laughs> detail that you add on there. This French electropop band chose an avant-garde, <laughs> yes. like probably black and white 1970s Japanese porno film. Like, yes. Come on, guys. <laughs> you probably haven't heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> That being said, I didn't actually watch the whole thing. I just did the, you know, the click through. Hey, you get the point, which is actually what I did with some of these songs as well. <laughs> just kind of like <laughs> oh. jump through. Sorry, that's rough. Now, I, I listened to this whole album probably 20 times this week. Rob, you had something? Sorry, you had the, I have something to say face. All right, my, <laughs> Rob's my, normal face, by the way. Right. <laughs> so Rob looks contemplative. He's say. like... <laughs> Am I the only one that was annoyed that the French song still have English titles? I felt uh, that like that was kind of well, false they're, advertising. <laughs> they're not even really a French band. I just learned that this week. Right. She they're just formed happened in London. Right. And most of them are British. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of them was Australian, right? 
but then moved to London. Yeah, I was I was a little thrown off by that because one of the things that I had a hard time with this week is trying to pick out who was singing at any given time because they do that annoying thing where they're just like everything's by Stereo Lab, and you're like, okay, but like who's singing? Who's playing what at this time like there's not a lot of very specific notes that i was able to find as to who was doing what very specific yeah there's things. very little in terms of the production notes on this and the two female singers i found had a tendency to sound very similar mm-hmm. as well sorry but anyway let's i, I don't want to poop on this one too much uh, right off the top here so let's get into some history so first we we always got to put people into a genre uh that's always one of the most fun things that uh Wikipedia has. So Stereolab here is considered avant-garde Anglo-French pop. I mean, they they did uh, write and record a soundtrack for a New York City art installation on an album called Music for the Amorphous Body Study Center. That's the one thing is that they have really cool song titles and all of the other album titles are super crazy, cool uh, I, I at least dug the album title aspect of these guys. That's I, I've always been fascinated by that. I was a big Medeski, Martin, and Wood fan back in the day, and they're just you know they have like, crazy, just acid jazz, no vocals at all, and some of their song titles were just amazing. You know, like Friday <laughs> Afternoon in the Universe. It's a great, it's a great title for like an avant garde jazz song or Chub Sub. It's like yes, yes. <laughs> So Stereo Lab is the brainchild of two main creative forces in the band, the songwriters and musicians named Tim Gain and Leticia Sadier. Leticia Sadier was born in 1968 in France. Uh, she recalls one of the big moments in her musical life was when she was 13 years old, around the year 1982, when France abolished the state monopoly on FM radio bands, which is crazy hmm. to think that it went that far into the 80s. Uh, with was still having state-controlled radio. So within a year, 22 private stations had popped up all over France playing all different kinds of music. She remembers racing home from school to listen to all these different genres of music that were now available on her FM radio. Uh, she also mentioned that later in her teen years, she really got into the Smiths because she had finally found someone who was more miserable than her, which I thought that that was a fun <laughs> little quote. They keep popping up, man. I'm sorry. They, I know. I, I they I deserve. Them. Yeah, they deserve because they're that great. List. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they're pretentious. She said that that was one of the first bands where she actually started listening to the lyrics. Uh, mm. Again, which is why I probably didn't like them too much. Yeah. And then decided to go like completely the other way. Because as much as I dislike the Smiths, I will say that Morrissey writes some clever lyrics. There's nothing clever about these lyrics. And my note on so many of these songs is, thank God it's in French, because if these were English words, I'd just be like, shut up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, do bands with lyrics I don't understand get a, particularly sung by a woman, just get away with more answer? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yep. no question. So Tim Gain, the other half of this songwriting duo, uh, was born in 1964 in Essex, England. He began his musical career in a genre called harsh noise in the 1980s. Gain eventually joined an indie pop band in England in 1985 called McCarthy. So we're going to flash back to Letitia. So as she grew older, she became disillusioned with the rock scene in Paris and noted that in Paris, if you stuck your neck out as an artist, you'd be taken out and shot. Paris? No. (laughs) Pretentious? In the 80s and 90s? Never. In 1988, Letitia met Tim Gain in Paris while he was performing a show with the band McCarthy. 
They fall in love. Letitia moves to London with him and they start Stereo Lab. So uh, Tim was 26 at the time. Letitia was 22 at the time. So they're very young. Uh, Gaines' plan for how to kind of run this band was similar to Phil, who just dropped off the call. Phil had always talked about wanting to have a band where you just release singles periodically throughout the year and just build up your catalog that way. Tim Gain had a similar idea. They really just wanted to release singles and EPs in small batches that would be customized and have limited edition releases. So they were like the, maybe they were the progenitors of that drop culture thing where these, these big brands release, hmm. you know, 500 uh, pieces of, of art so, or a bag or whatever. So I have a personal story that relates to that. It's funny you mentioned that. And it's funny that it was intentional because one of my main memories of this band, I listened to them a little bit in college and a little bit after college in, I don't know, on various mixed CDs. I'm sure I listened to this record before and some other ones. But what I remember is when I first came to San Francisco as a young man, I bought at Amoeba one of those EPs and I really liked it. I think it was had about four songs on it. I believe it was called First of the Microbe Hunters. <laughs> and yeah. and I listened to it a lot. And then I went, I was looking for it on Spotify and it's just not on there. I had to say I had a similar experience where I got instant O in the universe, which I love that. I still like that album a lot. I think it's really cool. It plays a little bit more to what I think their strengths are. I've always described the best Radio Lab songs sound like the third movement of a yes song. You get none of the weird ah. orchestral buildup, but then you get into that third movement drop where they kind of go hypno for a little bit. And that's yeah, like, yeah. that's the best version of their sound. I think I feel like Instant O in the Universe really nailed that sound for me. Yeah, that's a good that's a good call on the on the sound that I like them for. And I like some things on this record, I should be clear at the jump, but it does kind of tire you out over time. But when I like them, I yes, I like when it sounds like almost like you're in a fun house or you're going through the end of Willy Wonka's tunnel. Mm, yeah. That's that's the mode I like them in where it's where it's kind of oppressive but textural and interesting. Yeah, they are really layered. They do a lot of layering. Yeah. And it is a requirement for the long hypnotic songs where nothing changes. You, you know. Yeah, that's it's really interesting because part of me thought that a lot of these ideas seemed unfinished, un unprepared un unbaked you know but they spent so much time on the production versus the songwriting and i, I guess that was potentially deliberate as as we'll hear it with uh, an anecdote coming up here they sound like a jam band that recorded their jams and then we're like oh yeah let's let's develop this idea and by develop i mean put a bunch of layers on not write more yeah overdubbed weird space noises and uh early synths all right so the year's 1990 they're they're setting up a uh, audio lab is that what they're called Stereo Lab. Stereo Lab. Thinking of Radio Jesus. Lab, which Thank is the you. Other, yeah. Anyway. Tom already so, called them Radio Lab. Now you call them Audio Lab. I, did I call them Radio Lab before? God yes. damn well, it. Well, somebody mentioned Kai Rizdal, so I went all NPR there, and <laughs> yeah. now I'm thinking of Radio Lab. <laughs> that's, that's, that's on me. My bad. I knew I was going to make that mistake, and I'm kicking myself for doing it, because the whole fucking week I've been calling it Radio Lab to my Save wife. Same here. Like, no, Save wait. here. Because she'd be like, I like Radio Lab. I'm like, I don't think you do. I don't, I don't um, think you quite. Oh, wait. No, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of the podcast. Yes, you like that. Yes. All right. I'm going to write down Stereo Lab and underline. Although Jad Abumrad does sound like a Stereo Lab song type. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a lyric. Like, Jad Amburad. <laughs> you say it in a Frenchy accent and you got it. So they wound up setting their own, setting up their own record label called Duophonic in London. Gain always said that it was nice to have their own label 
to release records with because then they didn't have to justify it. They didn't have an exec saying, I don't hear a hit. So again, kind of, kind of funny to think, is that a good thing all the time? Yeah. Like, as Do you much have as, enough material for an album? Well, as much as those guys some kind, sometimes suck and are like, uh, you know, the bane of creativity, they're, they have that position for a reason most of the time. Right. They're like, this is not marketable. And not that everything has to be marketable. And I think that they were not necessarily going for marketable on a lot of the stuff, but they could have used some editing on some of these. Yes. Songs. Yeah. yeah. That's what, and that's what the best editors do. They don't really second guess your artistic intentions exactly, but they can just nudge you in directions. They can go trim this, write a little more here. And we've even we've talked about it many times in this podcast where the record exec goes, I don't hear a single, the artist is frustrated, and then goes right goes and writes a mega hit that night in the hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like part of what a good editor will do in these circumstances is that you as a band often will fall in love with a song in its entirety and a good editor will be like no 30 percent of this is great the rest of this is not good focus on the 30 percent cut out the rest and develop that idea as opposed to when it especially if you're trying to write stuff organically and you're kind of all together in a room when it comes together and it felt good when it came together you're like i love this what you really love is the feeling that you had when it gelled for the first time and an objective listener can come in and be like i understand that you had a lot of fun making this part of the song but this part of the song is not additive and you need to focus on the parts that are good and develop those ideas a little bit more well actually i'm curious adam if you do have more information on the production that you're going to get to because i got excited when i saw that the producer on this record is one john mcintyre drummer extraordinaire of seeing cake and tortoise that dude is a beast at least behind the drums nice i i don't so i'll disappoint right now <laughs> <laughs> i've seen him play a couple times i saw tortoise play one time and they had two drummers facing each other right at the front of the stage he was one of them it was awesome that's that's pretty badass all right so in, in may of 1991 they release a vinyl ep called super 45 uh, available via mail order or via a group of indie record shops in the uk they only pressed 800 copies again maybe they were way ahead of the game with the drop culture there so four months after that ep they released another ep called super electric eight months after that they released their first full-length album called peng Five months after that, they release a compilation of their first three releases called Switched On. So that's the way you do it, right? That's kind of, I feel like that has that Elvis vibe, right? You released all the singles and then you release an album that's supposed to contain everything that you had previously sold. So well done. Maybe they were secretly marketing geniuses. Mm, I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think the problem with the EP approach to release is that the bar is just naturally going to be lower. I think to almost anyone making music to release an EP, it feels a little more tossed off. It feels like you can get it done faster. It feels a little more like the songs don't have to connect to each other in any artistic statement kind of way. And so you're a little, you let yourself off the hook. And just because you compile them later, well, that's just a recipe for bloat, in my opinion. Bloat would be uh, not inaccurate to describe this album and honestly most of the other stuff that i've heard from them there are flashes of greatness but definitely yeah a lot of stuff could be left on the cutting room floor i and i and i should contrast that with versus if you actually only did singles if you thought in a single mindset and you said well only it has to meet the threshold of being a single and then there's just another song as a b-side 
that was kind of a different era. And I think that produced a lot of great material. Yeah. But the EP, I feel like, took that and ran with it in not an amazing way. Now, uh, Tom and Rob favorites, Bell and Sebastian, had a lot of success with this EP model, too, I should point out. And I think they did put a lot of great songs out on EPs. But in general, I'm just skeptical of this. Yeah, because like every EP is still going to have some filler on it. And when you got five songs and one or two of them is filler, that's a lot of filler for, (laughs) you know, as a percentage of the overall songs that are being released. If you released a 10 song album and you had four or five of those songs were filler, that's just not a good album. A la U2 from last week uh, for two weeks ago, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm done shitting on U2. Let's move on. All right, so I, I swear we're getting close to this album's release. We're just going to crank through a few more albums here. So 93, they land a deal with Elektra Records, at which point they release in 93 an album called Transient Random Noise Bursts with Announcements. Again, great album title. That's just crazy as shit. Uh, 94, they release Mars Audiac Quintet. 95, they do that art installation album called Music for the Amorphous Body Study Center. All right, it's 1996. They release Emperor Tomato Ketchup. It was released on March 18th. The album clocks in at 57 minutes and 15 seconds. And near the end, you start to feel every one of those seconds. So my joke in the intro about (laughs) the repetition does actually apply to this album. So in the year prior to releasing this, Tim Gade had gone through a period of writer's block after the prior release and trying to jumpstart his creative juices. They played around with doing a cover, a cover of a song that we're going to drop right here. For those of you not familiar with that, I don't even know what the hell that was. That was The Gods with their hit song, ABC. Oh, that's called, sorry, that's that's called A Piece of Trash, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Also, that's what that is. was this the first instance of replacing an S with a Z for Gods? Like, were they <laughs> oh, like way far call. ahead of the, the 90s like hip hop trend with that? Because that may be the one thing that I can give them credit for. That song is unlistenable garbage. <laughs> It sounds like a bunch of different people that can't hear each other. They all have like noise canceling headphones on and they're just playing their own thing. And my thing was like, uh, fucking D is for drugs, certainly. And J is for Jesus fucking Christ. This is unlistenable. Um, I had a hard time even listening to that. It's a short song. It was three, three and a half minutes. It felt like an hour. Felt like an hour. And my other review of that song is just like, fucking white guys with too much money who who have nothing better to do with their time but sit around and sniff their own farts and talk about how goddamn creative (laughs) they are it's just garbage it's avant-garde bullshit garbage and i'm sure that they were both velvet underground was a big fan of gods and they were also a big fan of velvet underground oh i bullshit (laughs) i call bullshit (laughs) i'm just picturing like 
you're sitting around your front steps with some friends and like a really loud trash truck or like some semi truck drives down the street. And it's just making this terrible noise and it, it, it leaves the block and you look at each other like we should cover that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, that cacophonous, horrific noise. Yeah, we should cover that. I just don't understand how you are supposed to cover this song. Well, look, I'm not defending this this song or even the avant-garde generally, which I just don't have much of a taste for outside of, say, the Velvet Underground, where I think the writing is is just superb. But to defend it for just a moment, I think there's just a movement within music that just says anything new is inherently interesting. And there was a time where really just noise and drones and ambience was new. It's It's not now to be clear. So I have zero tolerance for it now, but I think it's a little more interesting when you wind the clock back and you think about people taking major record label budgets even and making ridiculous stuff like that. It doesn't mean I want to listen to it. I just have some level of artistic respect for it. All right. So now I want to drop in Stereo Lab's cover of this song and we'll drop that in here. I mean, to try to take that prior song and do something with it, this is pretty cool. Well, look, this is a reason to cover things where you go, you know what? We can definitely do a better job with this. And they were right. Well, I yes. mean, that's a pretty low bar. Um, <laughs> I have we're covering it, silence. So doing anything is good. I mean, it, literally at one point I set up drums, guitar, bass, and piano. And I had my son who was six at the time have his friends over and they just made noise. And it was basically the same backing track of that God song. Um, the thing that I have a little bit of an issue with is that the, they took... I almost said Velvet Underground. Uh, Stereo Lab took just the lyrics, which are terrible and not in any way inventive, <laughs> and they kind of scrapped the rest of the vibe of the song and just put in like their kind of like hypno rock thing. And that to me stripped out what made that, if you were going to give that any credit as an artistic endeavor, which to be fair, I do not, but if you're going to, <laughs> the thing that they have going on is the disjointedness, it's the frenetic you know, uh, non meshing music going on. And they then turned that into a super locked in meshing song. And they just put the preschool lyrics over it, which were the least interesting part of it. Yeah, it's a good point. Oh, yeah, I, sorry guys. I almost forgot that I pulled out a Rolling Stone review citation for that, for that God's record. Oh, where they called them. Go on. A, they called them a miserable hard rock quartet from Columbus, Ohio, epitomizing the most wretched excesses of 70s rock. So that's not God. That's not the band. That's not the band you're talking about. If you go, there are two different bands called the Gods, and they're listed in Wikipedia as God's Ohio band and God's New York band. And the New York band is the one that had that weird freak out with, uh, with ABC. 
God's Ohio band was like a weird ass <laughs> hard rock band that was not this same band. I think the guy from Rolling Stone may have written that review of us two weeks ago. Maybe he just couldn't get the <laughs> podcast and the, the band right. straight. Yeah, but still. Yeah, <laughs> but still. They do it's sound miserable. St- it's still pretty accurate. Yeah. All right. So Tim Gain started, they, they did this cover of this song, ABC by the Gods, and he started playing around with the idea of repetition and samples and loops. And hence the create the driving creative force behind this album was kind of born. Emperor Tomato Ketchup was released in the UK under their own label. And in the US, it was released under Elektra Records. It only sold 46,000 copies in the USA. That was at the 16-month mark. I wasn't able to find any other uh, stats on, on how much it sold over the years. But it was praised by a lot of the, uh, the, the rock and music reviewers of the day. Rolling Stone called Emperor Tomato Ketchup an impeccably produced, creatively mixed collection that's a joy to behold in its full high-fidelity glory. Pitchfork also called it the Stereo Lab's most definitive and recommended statement saying that it sounded wholly futuristic and alien. I will absolutely agree with that to kind of to echo Tom's point that it doesn't sound like it was released in 96. Well, this, this is another one where context is important. And frankly, I don't have too much of it, but I know that this has got to be relatively early in the era of looped music, right? So that, that is itself impressive that they were making some of those leaps. Like, yeah, samples were a thing for 10 years, but I, I think now it's much more common to make music using this process. Of looping your own stuff. Correct. Right, right. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I am not at all surprised that they were critical darlings. This seems like purpose made to get people in like New York and L.A. and London press to like you or Paris press to like you and say, these guys are really interesting and cool. To be fair, I do like this album and I like this band. But I also will throw in the caveat that listening to this album this week, the shine was off it a little bit from when I was listening before. Back in the day when, let's be frank, I had nothing to do and I was sitting around smoking a shitload of weed and just listening to music all night. This was way more interesting than when I was trying to um, really dive in and examine it. Um, There were cool layers and there was some good stuff going on, but I don't think it resurrected that same feeling that i had when i first heard it maybe it's because it sounded new when i first heard it and i was like oh this is crazy this is really good i I i had a similar overall uh week to what you just described tom which is to say that i still like some of these songs i think of the ones on the focus list i kind of labeled about half of them as successful efforts good you know good songs the other ones maybe less so but this has me rethinking my commentary on the ep length releases, which is to say that I just got tired of this kind of music, giving it this level of attention. So you mentioned it just being on in the background of college parties and hangouts. Partly is that it's background music versus we us giving it a lot of attention this week. The other part is if it had been in 20 minute doses, I think I would have liked it better. Yeah, there's no reason for this album to be almost an hour long, especially for a band that was putting out EPs and had that mentality they could have put out six tracks seven tracks and it would have been a perfectly fine length for an album maybe they had the sense that we've already done these eps which 
to be fair, I don't believe that those EPs were all that short. You know, if you look at, give me just a second, I'm going to pull up Instant O in the Universe, which is the one that I really liked. What is the total length of time on Instant O in the Universe? It is, uh, it doesn't have a full length. It doesn't have a length of time for this on here, but it's somewhere in like the 25 minute mark or maybe like a 30 two minute mark or something like that. If they put out a 47 or 46 minute album, 45 minute album, I would have liked it a lot more, but you're right. This is somewhat oppressive by the end of it, especially those long, like hypno tracks. That's just one after another. And you're like, I, you got me. You already hypnotized me. Like bring me out of my reverie. <laughs> Give me something. And they do that sometimes more successfully than others. Yeah. My, my week was interesting because I had never heard of these guys before. And my first time through, I was very excited. It was very New sounding, very cool sounding, singing in French, a female vocalist, the kind of the loops, that vibe was very cool. But the opposite of some albums we've listened to where you listen and it grows on you throughout the week as it, it, it did the opposite. It kind of pushed me away as I continued the listens during the week. So I, I, I started to appreciate it less and less and less the more I listened to it. I was listening to some interviews this week and Leticia Satier actually had a really cool quote, just the way she thinks about music. And it's very artsy, but I liked the way she said it. She says, you don't really own music. Music escapes you, which I thought was really cool. It's like music is in some parallel dimension and it's simply using you as a conduit to escape into, into our universe. So that's very... Uh, well, I will, I will piggyback on what I like about that quote, which I do think is a good quote. I think that that is in general, most art, you lose ownership of it because you have to put it out into the world and has to be consumed and interpreted and appreciated by other people. And so you can make a song and somebody else can listen to that song and interpret it in a way that you didn't initially intend. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think talking heads are great. And, and, um, David Byrne specifically is a great songwriter is because he writes these songs that are essentially, just frameworks for where your own mental state is that you can put all your own baggage onto it and then come up with a meaning to it. Um, but I do think that, yeah, in general, art is, it's hard to say that I own this piece of art. I mean, legally you own it, you make the money off of it, but once it gets out into the world, it means something to somebody else and that they have kind of taken their own ownership of it. Like I, this first song on the, on the album, Metronomic Underground, like I have very specific memories of sitting at 56 Prospect Street in Newark, Delaware, and, you know, hanging out in college and having a good old time and chatting up girls and drinking and smoking weed with this song on in the background. That means something to me that I'm sure they have they had no concept right. of ever going to mean that. <laughs> right. I, I'll just double down. I mean, it, it is a nice quote, actually, even though it is a little pretentious. I agree with what Tom said, but additionally, I think she might be referring with music escaping you to the fact that. Things that are overworked sometimes are not as good. In my experience as a songwriter, the best material has come relatively easily, at least from a writing perspective. And it just makes me wonder if that's how they approached the writing for a record like this. Hey, we just thought of it. We just put it down. It sounds cool. Don't fiddle with it too much. Yeah. In fact, in, in a Pitchfork interview in 2012, Tim Kaine said that uh, about their songwriting sessions, he says, records are just the summation of the tracks we were working on at the time. Yeah, but obviously, of course. It's just <laughs> like, this is what I worked on and here's my record. <laughs> but that's, ki he's, that's kind of a way, yeah, that's kind of a way of saying I don't believe in albums as an artistic form of expression, unless they're just a snapshot of a time and place 
very generically. We, you know, we've never, I don't think we've gotten too deep into this, maybe on the dark side episode, but I think the con that the higher concept of what a record album can be is a complete piece of, of expression that is intended to go together and doesn't just happen to fit together chronologically in terms of when it was written or recorded. Sure. It's like, it would be ridiculous to write like one song about a fast food franchise, but you write seven <laughs> songs about a fast food franchise that all just blend together because they all happen to really um, have the same overarching themes. And then all of a sudden you got yourself a, a pristine work of art. I agree. Bye, Ghost Beef people. If only I could find something like that available on Spotify <laughs> with some merch as well that's available on <laughs> well, Ghost Beef out now. One, all right, to get back to, to, get, to get off the shameless self-promotion to get back to a little bit of where that quote, where, where I think that quote might be pointing is that live, they do sound different. They are a different kind of more guitar forward rock oriented band live and maybe that's what he's saying is that we release these songs and they continue to evolve and develop as we play them mm. and it's not just like dark side you hear you, you go to see pink floyd back in the day and they would play dark side of the moon in its entirety as close to the album as humanly possible that was their stated goal and these guys i do not get the sense that that's that's their stated goal they're kind of out there using the songs as a vehicle for current expression <laughs> Yeah, it's a good point. I was just thinking that even though I would have said I was a fan of this band, probably between the years of 1998 and, I don't know, maybe 2008, I don't think it ever occurred to me to try to go catch them on tour. No, never once. Never once did it occur to me. And I got to be honest, I think their crowd would be insufferable. It just oh. seems like they'd have the douchiest <laughs> fucking crowd in the world uh, of people who are all pissed that you were there because they're like, uh, I knew about them before they got cool. This is so my show, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like it when it's empty and yep. they're not making any money. We had? <laughs> yep. All right, we're going to dive back into the music here. So we're going to play a little bit more of Metronomic Underground and dig a little bit more into this tune. Are you sure you played a different part of the song, Adam? It sounded <laughs> remarkably similar. I think the bass line was the same. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I can't remember what is the Rage Against the Machine song that, that goes dum dum do bullet in the head. Bullet in the head. I want to take the lyrics <laughs> for bullet, <laughs> Bash up, bullet in the head and put it on. Hell yeah, man! Yeah. I, I couldn't get that out of my head all week. Yeah, this is a good one. This is a successful song. Funky beat check. '90s record scratch sound check. <laughs> and until the singing starts, which is like a good minute in or more, it could be a Diggable Planets track or some hip hop track. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. Shout out to uh, like Nickel Bag of Funk or something like that. So I, I I liked it. It doesn't need to be eight minutes long, but I get it. They're going for kind of trance. You know, this is good music to work to, basically. 
I came back around to it. Like you come back around to the song. You, it's that whole like, oh, this is cool. Oh, you've been doing this for too long. Oh, you've been doing this for the right amount of time. Like you come back around to it. it's it's hypnotism really gets you. Great bass line. It's got that same sense of like air, the air French band, where it's right, like it sounds right. like a short scale bass. It's played with a pick. It's very kind of like uh, up on the neck and not super mm-hmm. low. Honestly, I think the most complimentary part of the song, because there's a lot of layers, tons of layers just all over the place. There's two things that really stand out to me. Number one is that when they have the a guitar kind of doing a somewhat counter line, but it's very, very similar in cadence to the bass line, and you get a lot of pick sound in the guitar sound. Yeah. That adds this layer to the bass that if it was just the bass without that without that layer the entire time, it would be way more grating. But my favorite part of the song is the weird Bubba Dum, Bubba Dum, Bubba Dum, like the vocal, low, the right? low, ba- low backups. It's really yeah. great. And you don't get a lot of low backups like that, just trying to be used as an instrument. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, this is this is as jazzy as they get, too. I noticed just in, I mean, I know we already referenced Diggable Planets, but I don't think this is their normal wheelhouse for the rest of the record. So it doesn't set, a, in my opinion, does not set a tone for what you're going to hear on the rest of the recording, but it is good. Well, the one tone that I think it does set for the rest of the recording is that, I mean, this band lives and dies in their good songs on the layering, on bringing in small parts that are complementary to other parts, and that this song is a showcase for their ability to layer and their ability to affect different parts like the drums kind of pull out and sound like little like muted and dulled at a point the bass kind of gets pulled back and it keeps it interesting throughout that so good production on this song because if you just had the drums and bass same tone same timbre same volume the entire time all the way through it would have been grating and just annoying by the end of it but they do a nice job of adding layers and adding different filters and production sounds on top of it so I found that that became a trope, though, as the album progressed. Sure. Is that there was definitely, when I started to hear a groove, I was like, okay, well, it's been a minute and a half. Here comes some weird swell of synth noise and right on cue, or something like that to try to keep the song interesting. But to your point, this song does it well. Yes. Yeah, they definitely have a formula for the songs, all the songs. They do. And it took, I've been listening to this song since i was like 19 years old or something like that <laughs> and so I, so a long time listeners uh you cannot see my haggard face but trust me <laughs> there's you would not peg me as being in my early 20s um i never was able to pick up on what she's actually saying which is crazy sturdy a torpedo i thought it was french yeah by crazy, the way crazy sturdy a torpedo Torpedo. It's such a weird way. Why would you cut torpedo into two different like <laughs> phrases like that? And then every once in a while she says crazy brutal a torpedo. And yeah, it's pretentious shit. It should have been in French because then I would have been like, oh, okay, I dig that. Free pass. Free pass. All right, let's move along to the next song on our focus list. This one was one of their singles from this album. This is called Cybele's Reverie.
So for me, it's a toss up, but I marked this one as the best song. I think it has the best melodies. It was the most likely to be running through my head after even into next week. Well, it has a it has a normal song structure. <laughs> like, Does it though? There's an intro, there's a verse, there's a chorus. There, it changes a little bit. I don't know if you'd call it a bridge. Well, okay. So my my beef with this song is that at 245, the song just starts over and repeats. It's just the same song. It's like, I don't think it's literally the same tracks, but it's really effing close to being, they had that thing where they kind of, yeah. They kind of go out at the end of the of the C part, and then they just start again on the on the A part again, and it just yeah. picks it right back up. And it is unnecessarily long for that. Like I would have, I like the song. I again, I dig the song. I think that her voice, because it's words I can't understand, takes on more of an instrument quality than it does like a vocal quality. But after repeat listens, I was like, you're just starting the song again. And like you, sh- you need to do something different on the back end. You can't just do the same thing. I I didn't pick that up, but but you're right. As I re-listened to it, I didn't pick that up either. Well, one of the things I wanted to know, and they do they do this a couple times, but it happens right at the beginning. I suppose this you can call this a complaint. Is that about three seconds in the string section? I use strings in quotes. Does something that makes it very obvious that they're not an actual string section that it's being played on a keyboard. And I noticed that a few other times in the record. Like like the way he cuts, he pulls his hand off the keys, makes me pu- pulls me out of my my reverie, if you will, and d- into thinking it might be an organic string section. It's definitely a keyboard, okay. But I just I noticed that a couple times where they very purposely didn't want you to believe it was organic what was happening well but there are people there's like four people credited with playing strings on this album um which is why i thought this might be organic because it also the strings also sound a little out of tune am i crazy but do they sound like a little bit out of tune it it sounds like they might be running through some kind of effect like a phaser or some kind of something but yeah it's they're a little off i thought maybe it was they recorded a string part and then it was a little off time and they had to speed it up a little bit. And so it just kind of, yeah. yeah. I watched them do this live on that show, Jules Holland. Do you remember that show? It was a, it was a British oh, show yeah. where they would have three bands around. So they did this back in, I guess it was whenever this was released, 96-ish. And uh, they nail it. It sounds great. They've got the, the, two, the two front women. So it's Mary Hansons who's singing the other uh, vocal parts in the song. And I got to give uh, Leticia some props. She nails this, the tambourine through the whole song. Oh. So <laughs> you go yeah. watch that Jules Holland. Tambo. Yeah, she double times it during the chorus and nails it. Well, since you mentioned Jules Holland, just a little sidebar that, you know, Jules Holland was in Squeeze, another great 70s band. No pulling way. Pulling from the shell. Hell yeah. I think he's a keyboard player. Oh, get the hell out. Wow. And I All feel right. like William Tell me. Yeah. Fucking A, Squeeze. Awesome. Nice pull. By the way, way to name pulling muscles from the shell and not tempted as your squeeze song. For right. Please. <laughs> yeah. Please. Come on. I'm better than that, Tom. <laughs> I know you are, Rob. I know you are. <laughs> um, so I was listening to the backing vocals on this song, which are really cool. The I believe it's Mary Hansen who does the backing vocals on it. Um, right. 
who was killed in 2002 while riding her bike in London, by the way, which like hit by a truck, which is crazy. Jesus. To me. Like, it's not what I was expecting. It's like, oh, she died in 2002. I was like, what is it? A fucking yeah. overdose, of course. No, hit by a bike, hit by a truck when she was biking, which is, oh. you know, anyway. Um, a handful of years younger than us when that happened to Yeah. Right at 30 seconds, the backups come in and they're like a really great layer. They're all panned left, hard panned left. And then there's a guitar hard panned right that comes in with those backing vocals and they're really complimentary and they work really well together and it gives this little layer. But when the chorus comes around, hard panned left, if you guys have, I don't know if you, you did the same thing I did with just like one earphone in to listen to it hard panned left, she starts doing this insanely busy staccato backup line. It is so effing busy that if you really just try to focus on it, it kind of ruins the whole song. They mix it way down, but she's like, it's like, whoa, you got this like nice bed of melodic beautifulness going on. And then this weird like thing going on just in the left channel. And I like, like, just cut that shit out. You don't need that there at all. I, I noticed it at first, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I couldn't unhear it from then on out, and I was like, oh, I can't. I just man. can't the, think this The anymore. song is ruined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't unhear it. Damn it. <laughs> All right, we're going to move this thing along to the, I guess, title track, Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Minute 42 intro for a four oh minute, 37 God. second song. They Too tricked long. me so. It was like five times where I was like, all right, now's where they're going to be. And it just kept going. <laughs> and then there was a drum fill, no vocals. I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Two and a half minutes of one chord is not working for me. <laughs> it, uh, not a successful experiment. Definitely. Is this, by the way, is this Mary Hansen singing lead on this one? Because I I confuse the two singers a lot because they have somewhat similar sounding voices, but I thought that it sounded like this was Mary and not Letitia singing lead. But I couldn't tell because they don't give any goddamn information on who does what on these songs. Yeah, I uh, I I can't find anything on on who was actually doing it. So, but yeah, let's say it was Mary since she had a- good on you, Mary. Good on, well done. There were aspects of this song that were cool. Uh they're few and far between. Um, actually, no. You know what? As I reread my notes, I don't think I had any, <laughs> any positive I, notes I, on this. I marked this one as the low point, and I thought it was interesting that it was also the title track because I don't think we've had that. I I don't recall having that experience on the podcast before. Yeah, you're right. This is definitely... Um, I mean, they could have called the song anything, right? 
they didn't have to call this Emperor Tomato Ketchup. They, they were just like, we have to call one song Emperor Tomato Ketchup, so we're going to call it this song. I don't know what the hell they're saying. Um, I'm sure it's terrible and stupid. There was one song that I pulled, like I did the the translation of the French lyrics for it, and I was like, oh my God, these are ridiculously stupid lyrics. What the hell's <laughs> going on here? <laughs> yeah. But this one didn't have, I think maybe it's the tempo. It's a little too fast to get that hypnotism going on for me that they, I think, were going for. Because if it's not hypnotic, it's just one note. And this was one note. It wasn't hypnotic. And they could have so easily just hit the four chord or the five chord and given you some release from the tension of this monotonous thing. And they just didn't. So I don't know if that takes discipline to do that or just lazy songwriting. When you said, oh, yeah, um, they have a uh, Reuters block. It's like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> From what got printed, yes, they, yeah. they definitely did. My favorite part of this song is like kind of right at the end. It's at three minutes and 48 seconds in. There's this little line that comes in. It's either synth or it sounds like maybe an affected vibraphone or something. Doing this like kind of like a little like da 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 It's a nice layer. It's cool. But it's also the end of the song and it's sort of just the only thing that's interesting that happened in the entire song and it comes in sort of as they're fading not even fading but as they're sort of beating to death the end of this song all right gents it's time for the percolator no i'm sorry it's time for this percolator Uh, here we go this song is called percolator I have no evidence to back this up. I have no idea why, but I think of this as their hit song for some reason. Hmm. When this came on, when I was just like listening to this in the background for the first time, I was like, oh, this is their hit, right? And then I went searching for that. No, it's not a single. It's not one of their most played tracks. None of that. It's the most aptly named song on the album by a million miles. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. I think it's a successful track. It has one of the best starts on the album. Just listen, I think you said it. this lives and dies on their ability to layer I'll go one step further and say it lives and dies in their ability to create interesting, unique tones in what they're trying to, to layer on. And I just thought these were some of the best tones that, that I got. They, they splashed against my ear with a array of color. Yeah, I popped my head up on this one. I mean, it, it, it reminded me, my parents had an album by Sergio Mendez. Do you remember that name by any chance? This is in the 60s. He, in fact, he had a, a band called Brazil 66. And I just remember I, I would play it incessantly. And it was this type of groove. Hmm. It was, uh, and so that's my, my brain immediately went there. But yeah, this, this made me pop my head up and actually pay attention. It was, it was a very cool, very cool sound. I wrote 60s film soundtrack vibe as well. Ah, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Feeling that, yeah. So this is the song that I uh, translated the lyrics into English. And, um, I mean, I translated, I went to Google and hit the translate button. So, you know, a ton of work was put into that one, but after listening to it, 
it made me think that this song is about being at dinner with friends and really stoned and paranoid. The lines are, I'm very, very scared, that's for sure. I'm very, very scared, but much less. I'm very, very scared, that's for sure. I'm very, very scared, but much less that all the people at this table from my boat anchored deep navigate a direction and go far. That's the lyrics for this song. And the fact that they're in French helps generally. Absolutely. You're like, oh, Absolutely. It's not ridiculous. But I will also throw a little counterpoint in there. She does this little trill in there. It's like, uh, it's the, je she's like saying the je which is the like, I'm very, very scared part. And the way that she does the trill, it's the sound that I make when I have to spit something. I'm like, you know, like <laughs> it doesn't sound pleasant oh, to me. Letitia. Every time I heard it, I was just like, I know that it's a different language and you guys have different ways of enunciating and everything. But every time I heard it, it just sounded like, like, did you have a spit guard on your microphone? Because that thing would have been soaked by the end of it otherwise. <laughs> I do like her voice, by the way. I know I usually complain about people's voices. I think she's a really nice voice. Um, it fits this style of music very well. I like her voice a lot. I was even saying this when I was listening to this in the car with my wife, that even when she sings in English, accent aside, for some reason, her like timbre reads as French. And I don't know why. But yes. Like, it, she sounds French even when she's singing and there's not like heavily accented. A noticeable yeah. accent. Yeah. Right, right. By the way, we assume this is a looped track because I was thinking that after, what, three and a half minutes of the bass player going, which would be a fun bass exercise to see if you could make it all, yeah. all, all, all 347 of just hitting that same exact bass line on point. Well, I mean, I'm sure they have to play it live, so he's probably done it. He's, I'm sure that they have it so that he can do a lot of open strings on that and take a little bit of the pressure off of his hands. But Sure. Um, real sax for the win on this one, by the way. Coolest part of the song is that sax at the end. That sax is fantastic. I think it sounds great. Yes, even though it's out of key, but it's still cool. <laughs> it's an Adam nice and his Adam and his war on the saxophone right. continues. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it sounds really cool. It's jarring, and so the fact that it's out of key doesn't bother me at all because it's I think it's supposed to be jarring. It's it's cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll give it that. All right, gents. So we're going to roll this thing along to the last song on our focus list. This song is Tomorrow is Already Here.
tomorrow's already here, and oh my God, is it boring. <laughs> my note was that they discovered songs can be in seven, and we're like, we should just do that. <laughs> I thought for this song five was in minutes. Ten. <laughs> I think it's in ten. Oh, really? Hang on. Because um, my note is the 10 on the floor really helps to hold it together. <laughs> you don't get 10 on the floor a whole lot. Yeah. You can really dance to it. I, w- I was reminded of a song that we used to do in the chop back in the day that we all really liked. It was called Enter the Chop. And it was a bar of seven and a bar of eight. And then the chorus was in six. And like we liked it a lot. And nobody else liked it. And I think it's just you can't lock into a groove. <laughs> you can't. Uh, I think we were just, uh, first of all, Adam, can you guess who wrote that, by the way? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. He's not <laughs> here right Phil, now. Of course. Right. I think we were just impressed with ourselves that we figured out how to nail it. And we're just like, you must like, yeah. you must enjoy this. We, we worked hard on it. so much time on it. We were absolutely doing this at every show. I think that there's a little bit of that going on with this song where they're like, you, we wrote it in a lot of time signature. Come on, guys. Like, you have to like this song. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's not great. The way that they split the two guitar parts, dun, 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 and they're like in opposite ears. Right, right, different channels. Well, yeah. that's I like the opening of it the best. I just I thought that was the most exciting because it was disorienting. It got the kind of weird time, you know, it had the weird cut up guitar strum loop that you're talking about. But after that, I just thought it got boring and repetitive. And I I also wrote down that someone got really excited after purchasing a xylophone <laughs> plug in, <laughs> <laughs> like you wouldn't be. <laughs> we um. We did purchase a xylophone in the shop and we used it exactly one time. And we're like, that's, that's the place for it. This one ding that we need. And that's it. <laughs> my, first of all, my friend, that was a glockenspiel. Glockenspiel. You're right. It was a glockenspiel. You're right. <laughs> and yes, it was used effectively on the track. It's never enough by the shop. You can definitely hear it. Just one time. It's a ding. That's it. Never got used again. No, worth, no. It's a, worth it to bring it no, out to every show. No, no. We didn't bring it to the shows. But no, it's oh, okay. it's in there more than that. No, no. It's, it's in there a couple of times. I think we even doubled the riff with it. Oh, but then, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Without listening, I think it is. I think we bought it because I watched a Born to Run documentary and I heard it in the Born to Run recording. I was like, all right, we got to get this. We got to get this thing. If we want to be epic, we got to do this. It's like the timeless too. Exactly. Exactly. So right at 50 seconds in, they lay that organ chord down. That's just like. And it makes sense when they sing over it later to give it a little bit of a feel change for like a chorus or whatever. But it's not good it's jarring and it sounds like poop and i don't like it very much <laughs> it's not my favorite part of the song certainly yeah this is one of those this is one of those instances where so on the album this chronologically comes right before emperor tomato ketchup and when i was listening to the album chronologically i was just very very tired of them by this point cuz you got the noise carpet right before it which is basically mm-hmm. their version of just a straight ahead rock song. And it's so ho-hum and I, I, you know, I don't dig it at all. And then you got this song and then you got Emperor Tomato Ketchup after it. And I was just like, God, just end the fucking album at this I'm point. tired. I'm 36 <laughs> minutes in. My headline review of Noise of Carpet was, first off, congrats on the song title. Otherwise, you blew it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what's the most boring thing in the world? I don't know, carpets? Yeah, carpet. this song sounds like a carpet. All right. 
<laughs> if anybody told me my song sounded like the noise of a carpet, I'd be like, that is not a compliment. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna repeat that. <laughs> yeah, unsuccessful experiment here. Again, congrats. You wrote it in a weird time. And then that's about yeah. all that you had. Yeah, this was my yeah. I don't ultimately I don't think the song was successful, partly from listening fatigue, as you just mentioned. But I thought it started promising, had some promising elements, but I just didn't think it paid off. Yeah. And uh, this is another one of those songs where it's like almost five minutes. Absolutely does not need to be almost five minutes. The only thing I, the only positive thing I can say for Noise of Carpet is that it's only three minutes and five seconds. Like, like that's the appropriate length of time for a song like that. If this, for this song, if this song right. was two minutes and 45 seconds, I might've been like, okay, cool. Yeah. Yes, the novelty of the time signature wears off very quickly because they don't do anything else. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right, folks. So that wraps it up for our focus list. What we're going to do now is what we all come here for, which is to vote on whether or not we think this album deserves to be on the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Let's throw it over to Tom first. Oh, man, I was really hoping you weren't going to come to me first. Um, Let's throw no. it over to <laughs> Rob first. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Listen, I... I had a hard time. I think my nostalgia lens uh, colored my experience of this in a positive way that I think that if I was listening to this for the first time would not have been in existence. That being said, I'm still going to vote it on the list because I do think it has partly it's just an it's undefinable to the era. Like this was 1996. The hits in the U.S. at least were like mariah carey and boys to men and like celine dion and stuff like that so it doesn't sound anything like that and i will give that to them they have a different sound is it successful all the time absolutely not when it is successful is it cool yeah i i like it on balance and so i'm going to give it a yes not just because i like it but because i do think it sounds different all right rob yeah i think we were a little harsh on it overall in this podcast, partially because I was dealing with the same thing Tom just said. I had some positive feelings of nostalgia for it, but coming back, I noticed a lot more of its flaws and was just felt weary listening to it. That said, I think it's distinct and melodic and textural enough. Yeah, go for it. I think it should be on the list. It's squeaking through for me. It's worth, it's worth, getting a large, a broad array of things into your musical diet. And this fits that. This was my first experience and exposure to this band. I went back and listened to some of their older catalog, as well as some of the newer stuff that has come out within the last 15 years. And I don't think that the ideas on this album really panned out. I think that they lacked some focus. I think, again, they had a cool idea, but I don't think it really worked. So I'm going to say no, but you should still go explore some of the other albums in their discography. Definitely a, a cool sound and an interesting band. But my vote means nothing. So congratulations, Stereo Lab. You're in. Letitia and Tim, well done. I do want to reiterate what Rob said. Just barely in. Just, just barely in. in. I, yeah. I, tie goes to the runner. You're getting in, basically. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to throw things over to Tom to see what our homework assignment is for next week. Tom, take it away. All righty. Um, we are, you know what? We're not going to bust out the Albinator for this one because we're going to do something a little different, people. And I, I think that you'll probably be able to hear it in the overall recording. Rob, who has been just world hopping, 
for the last year or so is now finally back in the States and on the East Coast. And so uh, a bunch of the guys, not myself, unfortunately, are going to get together uh, live at Alan's house. And we wanted to pick a good album for the live at Alan's house recording. And so we are going to do the Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed, which should be an interesting album. I'm really, I must say, disappointed that the first time that the Rolling Stones come up, I'm not going to be able to be on the podcast because I just want to talk shit on the Rolling Stones and then vote them onto the list. (laughs) Um, Luckily, they have many albums on the list, so they will come up again. Yeah. But uh, this is a slightly earthier, more organic offering versus Stereolab, so it'll be a little different vibe. I might be able to fill in for you, Tom, and and take up some of of your duties and responsibilities. (laughs) Adam not liking off-key singing? You you don't say. (laughs) I mean, there are at least three really good songs on this album. Like, Give Me Shelter, Let It Bleed, and uh, You Can't Always oh, Get What You Want. Lord. Or, they're really good songs. Midnight Rambler is a good song. So I'm going to, you know, Adam, please be my avatar. My, uh, you know, <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my vengeful avatar for next week and, and talk shit on how much of a dick everyone in the Rolling Stones seems like they are. <laughs> I'm surprised it's taking us this long to get to them. So I was happy to, uh, to put my vote in for this. Awesome. All right, there you go, folks. So your homework assignment for next week is the Rolling Stones album, Let It Bleed. I know I mentioned it at the top, but don't forget, you can always send us an email, whether or not we got it right or got it wrong. You can send that email to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Don't forget, we've got an Instagram account as well at The Chop Unlimited. We've got all kinds of great content, snippets of the show, as well as other random musical knowledge and musical musings uh, coming out of that. So go check that out. Some good stuff there. And I think that's going to do it for us. So for 1001 Album Complaints, I'm Adam. I'm Tom. And I'm Rob. Boosh. Could you, is there a French version of Boosh that we could have done there? <laughs> Le Boosh. Le Boosh. <laughs> of the in-house drive-by They say jump, you say how high